Hey, Mark, did you bring these donuts into the recording studio? Yeah, do you want one? Uh, there's a chocolate one and a glazed, I got a bear claw, and this weird one with some kind of jelly inside. Uh, sure, but then there'll only be three left if I take one. Is that going to be enough to get you through the show? I'm pretty sure I'll make it. You know, this reminds me of something I've been meaning to ask you about math. I love maths. Math. Maths. Yeah, anyways. So, it's easy to see here that if we have four donuts and I take one away, there are three donuts left. I can just count them. Yeah. But imagine I had a cargo container with four million donuts in it. That sounds amazing. If I took a million donuts out of this container, how many would be left? No, that's easy. There's three million. So, you're going to count three million donuts. Well, no, I don't have to. It's simple subtraction. But... It's different from the donuts here in the studio, where we're actually counting each donut in front of us. Yeah, I guess so. So how do you really know that 4 million donuts minus a million donuts is 3 million donuts, if you've never actually seen it in the real world? You know what? I'm just going to enjoy one of these donuts and hope we find out on today's show. Hey everyone, welcome to You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome people like you. I'm Chad Allen. I'm America's sweetheart, Mark Sanders. And I'm the Ubilities of the Midwest, Paco Allen. <laughs> <laughs> that is not that is not the intro to the show. I thought we no, this wasn't the episode where we're doing all geographic based <laughs> nicknames. <laughs> So, Mark, in the opening uh, bit that we just heard where you play a guy, a completely fictional version of yourself who loves donuts, um, that character was arguing that we can know stuff about the world even if we haven't had direct experience of it. Like, we can know that if we take a million donuts out of the cargo container that has four million donuts in it, we're going to have three million donuts left, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the the sense that um, there's some not irrefutable, but some uh, establishments of how we perceive the world that we can come to um, if we were sealed in a in a virtual box with uh, with only our our, our minds in, in jars and donuts and and donuts, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you count the donuts by eating them, like the uh, the Tootsie Pop Owl? <laughs> Or maybe a donut power clock. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the kind of uh, knowledge that um, in philosophy we call a priori knowledge. So knowledge, knowledge that we have about the world independent of our sensory experience, right? So the notion there is that we can have a priori knowledge of the fact that 4 million minus 1 million is 3 million, even if we never have the experience of having 4 million things and taking away a million of those things yeah right. I, I always i always remember the, the the latin based on a priori as in prior meaning before right. and posteriori is like after right like at the back end the as in posterior right and so the posterior that is going to be the last butt joke that we make when anybody says posteriori <laughs> a posteriori can i have a couple of minutes to edit my uh my, my notes in that case because I, I got two or three more later in the show that i need to <laughs> well i mean just make of. them good right 
Yeah. If you're going to break Fair Chad's enough. rule about Star Trek, make it good. If you're going to break my rule about <laughs> a posteriori and butt jokes, then make them good. <laughs> right. So the a posteriori. A posteriori. I'll just dub, I'll just dub that into anytime anybody says it. Yeah, you, you don't want that to fall through the crack. <laughs> That's I totally out of context. That's an example of bad a posteriori joke because it's out of context. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that's why I was making it as an example. Continue, continue. So in contrast to a priori knowledge, as you noted, Mark, is a posteriori knowledge, which are facts that we acquire via our sensory experience of the world. So facts that, you know, as you put it, come after our experience of the world. And so those two kinds of knowledge, a priori knowledge and a posteriori knowledge, are concepts of knowledge that sort of flow through um, philosophy, sort of like going as far back as the ancient Greeks. And today uh, we're going to talk about two schools of thought in epistemology, um, which is the study of knowledge, that relate to these two kinds of knowledge. I remember way back in the, the second or third episodes, uh, I asked you to summarize epistemology. Yeah, and you I were like, that too. "No, no, I'm not going to." So now yeah. I, I've been I've been sitting on the edge of my seat for eleven weeks. So I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> um, epi- how, let, try this on for size. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. Awesome. Done. <laughs> I mean, homework, Mark, for next episode. You can you can tell us all about what epistemology is. There's a Wikipedia entry for it, Mark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why was it... I sitting here waiting? <laughs> <laughs> it's so we'll kind of come at what epistemology is by talking about this particular problem in epistemology, which are two schools of thought about how we attain knowledge. So we're going to talk about rationalists who believe that we can acquire a lot of knowledge a priori, so independently of our sense experience of the world. And then we'll talk about empiricists who argue that our knowledge about the world, uh, in particular our knowledge about the external world, is a posteriori, so comes from our um, sensory experience of the world. And I think that even some of the earliest ancient Greek philosophers who were rationalists believed that we could gain all knowledge from a priori methods that we could sure. do, do it all like completely inside of our heads, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a strand in rationalist thinking, for sure. There was definitely that idea that uh, the clarity of almost like platonic thought that ideas can exist in a in a, uh, an idealized sense and, and facts can be known um, based on some uh, ideal sense of, of what a, a piece of information is, is definitely a very Greek uh, way of approaching it. You know, even when you look back at, you know, to, to revisit our topic of, of math, as you like to say, um, there was very <laughs> there, there was very little um, arithmetic in in uh, in Greek mathematics because they weren't really me- interested in measuring stuff. That's what laborers did. That's what the you know the construction uh, teams did when they were building your you know Corinthian colonnades. They were just interested in the trigonometry of angles <laughs> and how they related to each other. All right. So looking at rationalism, that's a very broad topic, um, uh, and there are many branches of of rationalist thinking. Um, we're going to focus on um, just. Uh, a couple of uh, ways of, of expressing that um, the in- intuition and deduction thesis is uh, a way of uh, of tackling it. Um, this thesis says that uh, we know that some facts via our intuition, our gut, our, our, our intrinsic understanding of, of the world, and other facts we learn by deducing them. So summing together those 
lowest common denominators of uh, of what we understand to be um, immutable laws and, and rules and uh, concepts and then building up more complex ones. So, for example, we know through intuition that three is greater than two. Um, we know through intuition that three is a prime number based on our, our sense of, of what that means. Um, so we can deduce that, that there is a prime number greater than two. So we're, we're amassing and we're building on and we're, we're creating um, logical arguments based on information that you know, is conceivably only available inside our heads. Right. And so there's this idea that we can sort of gain additional knowledge and insights by combining these so-called intuitions, right? And so we're actually, by combining these intuitions, we're actually learning more. So there's this sense that like we can acquire knowledge independently of our sensory experience of the world by combining multiple intuitions via deduction. Right. So if we can understand concepts of numbers like one or two or zero and we can understand concepts of what a prime number is then we can combine those things into more complicated understandings of how math works or or how the world works right but those are all things that we can understand just based on the ideas of them we don't have to actually experience looking at two donuts and three donuts to understand that three donuts is more than two donuts. Right, right. Yeah, now I want to put it in context that, you know, it wasn't just the ancient Greeks that, that really had a, a, you know, a love affair with this this kind of uh, rationalism. Now, we don't often talk about you know, schools of philosophy outside of the, the Western ones, but I, I, I do want to bring up um, Avicenna, the, um, the Muslim uh, philosopher who was born in Spain around um, 980 who had a wonderful thought experiment uh, that he called uh, the floating man, which is a, a wonderful uh, approach to um, creating a, a you know a relatable kind of exercise like this. Imagine a person, a full-grown man, who was created um, uh, out of nowhere in a single stroke by whatever means you you have at your disposal in this thought experiment, and he is um, he is blindfolded, he is floating, he uh, he has no sense data coming in. His uh, his eyes are covered, his ears are covered. He has no sense data. All his arms and legs are spread apart. He has no physical sensation of the world. Can he make any assumptions about his world? Um, and he goes on to elaborate. In, Is in he very... in like one of those sensory deprivation tanks? Um, he 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 possibly would be if he had the concept <laughs> of that in the uh, the first millennia. Um, yeah, but but his his idea was uh, that uh, he could have arrived at the idea of a soul by purely the thought process will be available inside his own head inside his sensory deprivation chamber yes yes because so, so he has he has no sense data and he has to kind of establish the entire world through his own thought process right it's very cartesian it is and that's where uh, a lot of uh, descartes thoughts are, i believe you know are centered as well the fact that you know we are um in in his sense um you know products of a of a deity of a of a god that created us with the capacity to to have these um the, these rational thoughts within ourselves so we could a um uh, factor um so many of these these uh, intuition um or insights around uh, knowledge so we could be um conscious but also so we could perceive uh, god himself which again is maybe more of a a circular argument or a tautology yeah, if you will i think that that is pretty consistent with a lot of the kind of early rationalist philosophers is this idea that we're, you know, in addition to all the other things that come along with 
the belief system of uh, rationalism is this idea that we're born with a certain amount of knowledge of things. And if you go back to the ancient Greeks, it gets like super kooky where it's like, we know everything about the universe and we're kind of like reincarnated. And every time we die and are reborn, we forget that we know that stuff. It's a little bit like Rumsfeld's unknown unknowns. Like we, it's there somewhere, but we've forgotten that we know it. And then we got to like relearn right. it through the years. But the relearning it is just discovering the stuff that we already knew. It, that's, I think, really bizarre to hear and kind of come to grips with from a modern contemporary viewpoint. But even up through like the 1600s and 1700s, I think a lot of the rationalists still believed that we were all born with an, an innate understanding of what God was. Yeah. And it feels like it's kind of like a reverse engineering of the place and time and the culture that those people existed in and the fact that almost everybody believed in God. And so you kind of had to build a philosophical viewpoint that right. also took that into account. Well, that's kind of why I wanted to talk about the intuition deduction flavor of rationalism, because it's, it seems kind of more modern than the flavors of rationalism that you're talking about, which are generally categorized as sort of like innate concepts or innate ideas, versions of rationalism, where we kind of like we have all of this knowledge within us that's just sort of like waiting to be awakened, you know, that's either, you know, that is in some way, shape or form part of our part of our nature. Right. Or if you or if you just spend enough time taking all of the innate ideas that we're capable of conceiving like mathematics. And this is the other, I think, tough thing about rationalism for, for me to accept is it almost always falls back to mathematics. There are, are arguments in rationalism for how you use that to build ethic systems or moral systems, but it almost always kind of falls back to, well, you know, we can think about, we can understand what the idea of one is without having to see right. a single object. Like it so much relies on that. And if it's, if there was more about the kind of knowledge that we all typically think of that we want to gain, like knowledge of how does the world work? How does my mind work? Why am I here? Like, how did it all get started? Like, the big questions that philosophy is traditionally supposed to be trying to answer seemingly aren't tied up in just mathematics. So it's tough to kind of, like, buy into that system when that's the starting point, seemingly, with, with yeah. every single one of these guys. It's it, it's very practical, though. So the, the illustration that, that comes to mind is when the classical Greek or Roman child grows up and first sees a tree, they understand what a tree is. and But as they get older, they realize that what they understand to be a tree could actually look very different. There's a lot of different trees in the world. And they even understand after a while that other people see colors differently see shapes differently they may be perceiving an entirely different tree so how come if all of these uh, all of this sense data is different do they all have the same concept of those things being the same same thing you could draw a tree with you know three lines on a piece of paper and you could come to some agreement that you're making an association to this this platonic this idealized form through your intuition that what you're both looking at is a tree even though there's no guarantee that you're perceiving it in the same way so it makes a lot of sense to be able to say that there is a rationalist experience of, of what we understand to be knowledge because we understand that to be the case that is, is the foundation of how we communicate to everyone. But in that tree example, if you saw a tree, a single tree, your first tree, and then I drew a line, that line drawing that you're describing of a tree, that was the second thing that you saw that was supposed to be a tree. 
you wouldn't understand that that was a tree. Like you only understand that that's a tree after you've acquired enough experience and sampled enough of the world, after you've sampled enough trees to be able to draw enough similarities between them that that mm. simplified drawing of it can represent the idea of a tree. Like that, that's, that, that can't be the second tree you see and understand that those two things are referred to by the same concept. Yeah, and I guess you couldn't also understand what a tree is without ever having seen any trees. I think that even rationalists acknowledge that there's a limit to what most rationalists anyway acknowledge that there's a limit to what we can know without having some sensory experience of the world. But I think the crux of the debate comes down to can we know anything about the world independently of our experience of it? And if you say yes to that, then you're saying yes to some form of rationalism. And by the way, I don't think it's I think that you're right, Paco, that that a lot of the sort of like core examples for in defense of rationalism revolve around things like mathematics and geometry and trigonometry, um, because those seem like things, you know, like addition and subtraction seem like things that are independent of our, that, that we can understand independent of our experience of the world. But I think there is also, there are also other threads in rationalism, which maintain, I think, as you mentioned, that we can discover moral or ethical truths um, without experience of the world. And and that's why I think this intuition deduction flavor of rationalism is interesting because it it also does that's where you start to sort of I think see how you could construct an argument for moral systems that exist in that that we can discover independently of our experience of the world. You know, there are arguments that we have um an intuition that murder is wrong or that lying is wrong and that we believe that those intuitions um, exist independently of our having to experience murder in the world, right? Then we have an intuition that's kind of baked in that it's wrong. And so that's another, I don't know, that's another area in which rationalists have relied heavily on this notion of intuition is to say that we can discover moral truths about the world without having um, direct sensory experience of those moral facts. Yeah, I mean, I think as soon as you start to move away from concepts that seem as axiomatic as as mathematics and into things like we have an intuition of murder being wrong, I think it. I think that argument gets much more fuzzy because I think if you look at how human beings develop from birth to the point in time when they have an idea about the idea that hurting other people is wrong. Like, you know, every kid I've seen uh, at one point in time, like does not understand the concept that hurting somebody else is wrong and that you can extrapolate that to murder. I think that is, seems to me that is something that is developed through real world experiences and is learned over time versus something that is an innate idea that exists within all human beings from the time that they're born. Like, I think it's much harder to prove that than it is to argue the idea that somebody who is a disembodied mind, like the floating man that Mark described, or, you know, imagine yourself as just your consciousness with no physical yeah. sensory data. Yeah. The concept of one seems... Okay, so let's talk about empiricism. Okay. Uh, empiricism is obviously the kind of opposite side of this coin. It's the 
approach to or the, the the belief that our acquisition of knowledge or our ability to acquire knowledge about stuff is based on our experiences as opposed to the ability to use cognition sans experience to develop ideas about how things work and and acquire knowledge about stuff right so you know there's a handful of people that are kind of considered the key founders of kind of modern empiricism um starting with francis bacon who's frequently called kind of the father of empiricism he developed some of the earliest work on inductive methodologies uh, and what we would think of today as scientific inquiry. And actually kind of like this approach to acquiring knowledge was at one point called the Baconian method um, mm, and has kind of Baconian. transitioned. Yeah, um, <laughs> which is not a um, a method of wrapping everything you cook in bacon, but actually kind of like <laughs> the predecessor to the scientific method that is still right. used today. Not to be confused with the Bacon Method, which is a website owned by the podcaster Dan Benjamin for cooking baking. Why do you keep mentioning other podcasts on our podcast? <laughs> Backlinks? <laughs> um, there was a question uh, mark at the end of that. <laughs> So uh, if you want to keep, this isn't a, a visual show, it's all audio, but if you want to keep an idea of like what Francis Bacon looks like in your head so you can keep all these people straight, he looks a little bit like Eric Stoltz in Pulp Fiction with like darker hair. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 Um, so then we'll jump forward. Most of these people also kind of all overlap. You know, Francis Bacon lived from 1561 to 1626. The next person we'll talk about is John Locke, who was born in 1632. So all these people kind of overlap in. Most of them are like picking up the work from the last, you know, giant whose shoulders they're standing on and kind of, you know, continuing this the, this work of empiricism. So um, John Locke, not the character from Lost, but the person he's named after, he kind of picks up uh, the work of Francis Bacon. And the big thing that he writes that contributes to this topic is his essay concerning human understanding. So he really attempts to kind of drive home the importance of human experience in this as the the method by which we acquire knowledge. And one of the important things that he kind of brings to the table in this essay is this idea of simple ideas and complex ideas, which in a way is kind of similar to what we were talking about with the rationalists in terms of, you know, taking a simple mathematical concept and then combining that with other simple mathematical concepts to create right. more complicated ones, right? So he would yeah. say there's simple ideas that we can learn through our experience and then we can combine those to make co more complex ideas. So like the idea of a unicorn is a complex idea, but we can develop that idea even if we've never seen a unicorn, even if we're developing an idea about a hypothetical non-real thing that doesn't exist in the what we consider the real world. We can develop that by taking the concept of a horse, which we've developed through actual experience with the concept of a single spiraled horn, which... I don't know, maybe we've seen on some exotic fish or whatever, but... Narwhal? Narwhal. E even then, we, we can take the idea of a spiral and the idea of a horn and the idea of a horse, right? And, and even all those ideas might be built on more simple ideas, but we can take these multiple simple ideas and build them up and build them up into more complex ideas. Uh, the other important thing that John Locke kind of brings to this conversation, which certainly wasn't purely his invention, it existed in kind of bits and pieces in previous uh, philosopher's writings, but this idea of the tabula rasa or the blank slate, right? This idea that he yeah. talks about where we 
uh, kind of come into the world as a blank slate and that everything that we use to build our knowledge of the world or of the universe is from experience that we kind of like write onto that blank slate. So we got Francis Bacon, uh, Eric Stoltz from Pulp Fiction. We've got John Locke, <laughs> who is Adrian Brody, basically. But if you even want to get it more mm. specific, it's Adrian Brody playing Ichabod Crane. <laughs> That's John Locke. <laughs> okay. Do you think this is a, this is a, a great a pitch for a movie for like 18th century philosophy come to life? Maybe a kind of a Romeo and Juliet kind of we could maybe have a, a you know, a pop music soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. This could all work. Tell me more. Is that it? <laughs> maybe maybe a Buzz, Baz Luhrmann score? So we're retelling the lives of these star-crossed philosophers to a, a soundtrack of of popular classics. Well, I think you know there's a there is a a, a real uh, drama here. I'll let Paco get through the British guys, but he's basically talking about what is now known as the school of British empiricism, and there's a whole other trio of dudes on the continent, Leibniz, Descartes, and Spinoza, who are arguing the rationalist point of view at, at roughly the same, on, on roughly the same timeline as, as these empiricists that Pac was talking about. So if you want a really good, if you want a really good action movie, uh, you would, you would pit these English guys against the, the Europeans and, and have at it. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways that's why they get grouped into that trio is because you've got like the continentals, You've got the British Islanders. You've got those three people who are overlapping. That's why Francis Francis Bacon gets dropped out of that is because yeah, he's a little bit too convenient. early. Yeah. Yeah. So then after John Locke, there's George Barclay. Barclay, not Berkeley. Don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. Uh, so, you know, he's really, again, building on Locke's work and on Bacon's work. The, the, I think one of the big things that he does is he really kind of goes on the offensive and attacks this idea of abstraction. And I think abstraction you know, kind of as I understand it, when he writes about abstraction is basically kind of a stand in for rational thought or a priori method of acquiring knowledge. And he basically says, like, those concepts can't even really be formed in what a rational, what most people think of as a rational way, that they're not needed for communication or knowledge, and that they're inconsistent, and therefore inconceivable. And I kind of feel right. like he probably gets a little bit too dogmatic and goes a little bit too far with this. But who does he look like? He looks like Boy George. <laughs> Crazily enough, George Barkley <laughs> looks like Boy George. Really? Yep. Do you think that Boy George modeled his look on George Barkley? Uh, potentially. I mean, George Barkley's got some flair. He's got some style. So, huh. yeah, potentially. Okay. Um, so then, you know, there are certainly some contemporary empiricists, but kind of the last big, you know, non-contemporary historical figure is David Hume, who we've talked about before uh, on other topics. But uh, that's kind of like maybe the 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 focus of this last bit on uh, empiricism. And uh, if you want to keep a picture of him in your head, it's basically John Lovitz. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, <laughs> can you just run through the, the oh, sure. likes yeah. again okay. for me? Um, so Francis Bacon is Eric Stoltz from Pulp Fiction with darker hair. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. We talked about Descartes earlier. Uh, Inigo Montoya mm. from, uh, uh Princess yeah. Bride. Bradley. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then yeah. you got John Locke, who's Adrian Brody, but more specifically, Adrian Brody playing Ichabod Crane. Right. <laughs> George Bar Which has never happened as far as I know. No, it hasn't. But, but you know, you get a little but bit of the can. period dress and, and right. you know, he might drop a couple pounds to play that part. And uh, yeah. you got John Locke. 
uh, George yeah. Barkley, easiest one to remember because uh, George Barkley, boy George. Yep. And then David Hume is John Lovitz. So I think, and then we said Descartes is... Well, uh, he's in in Diego Montoya, but um, you can't have uh, what's-his-name play that part now because he's just too old. Manny Potemkin? Manny Potemkin, yeah. Yeah. Okay, but we should do the other side. So you've got Descartes. I think that Leibniz is uh, Kevin Spacey, basically, but with an amazing wow. wig. Yeah, that's not bad. I struggled trying to figure out who that was. There's, And so I think also we should try to stick to like the paintings from their Wikipedia page, because especially when you get into someone like Leibniz, <laughs> the variety <laughs> yeah. of how that guy looks is so crazy <laughs> yeah. that it's, yeah. it's hard to pin him down. But yeah, I, I, right. I think that's a good call. And what about Spinoza? Oh, Spinoza is Jerry Seinfeld with long hair, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, see show notes for any of this to make sense. What's the deal with rationalism? <laughs> okay, well, that was we an know. amazing sidetrack. Yeah, I mean, I am now super, super psyched about this movie. Yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah, it's all star cast. I don't know if we're going to afford it. It's an all star cast, man. I mean, Adrian Brody and Jerry Seinfeld in the same movie. Is it kind of like like an Ocean's Eleven heist movie with the with the philosophy <laughs> subtext? We'll oh get the Kickstarter God, page up made. next week. Yeah. Okay. No so, any, anyways, uh, Hume, being an empiricist, he sets out to bolster Bacon, Locke, and Barclay's argument that knowledge is gained by observation and experience of the real world, and he kind of does this in two main ways. First, by defining the categories or processes that we use to gain knowledge and then by critiquing the rationalist method of acquire of of how they acquire knowledge so hume claimed that any process we use to try to gain knowledge can fall into one of two categories and this is kind of like the same it's just him like recategorizing the the categories that we already have of a priori and a posteriori uh, but he breaks these down into categories. He he uh, terms relations of ideas and matters of fact. Um, and at right. some some point, like somebody terms this Hume's fork, which if you know anything about Hume. Mm. Uh, he loved to use a good fork. He did. Big drinker, big eater, loved the pleasures of life. He probably had like a fork that he kept in his pocket in a bag just in case he needed it. <laughs> Which was actually Hume's fork. <laughs> they say he carved it from a bigger fork. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's one of my favorite Simpsons, uh, Simpsons episodes. Yeah. The chili cook-off. Uh, so anyways, <laughs> uh, relations of ideas describes the first category of knowledge that includes things like what we said before, math, geometry, arithmetic. Uh, which it's argued are discoverable simply by thinking about those concepts. You don't need a yeah. physical experience of a square to understand that the concept of a shape with four equal sides and four right angles is a square. Matters of fact, that's the second category. Those deal with experiences. So this donut is sweet. This gin and tonic is intoxicating. It's raining in California. These are all learned a posteriori by directly experiencing them and they can be proven wrong and this is kind of like the scientific method aspect of this they can be proven wrong by experiencing something contradictory to the statement so if i was to say yep there are three donuts here 
you can't disprove that with pure logic. You can't disprove that without using your one of your five senses, right? Um, yeah. You have to look and see how many donuts are there. So this is, I think, one of the things that, that the empiricists use as a strength of of kind of their point of view is that they also provide a way that you can disprove a statement made using uh, an empiricist method. I think it's important, though, to note that like it's it's easy to read Hume as someone who who was sort of a rationalist about mathematics and other necessary truths in that vein and an empiricist about you know our sort of like experience of specific instances of things in the world but he does say um that the necessary truths that we find in pure mathematics are are things that um i think he says would never it would never have occurred to us to think of those things if it were not for our sensory experience of the world so he is like a a true empiricist in the sense that he thinks that even those necessary truths of mathematics are not things that we're going to come to by you know sitting in our sensory deprivation chamber like we need some uh some experience of the world to sort of like trigger our thinking about those ideas yeah i mean i think it's interesting because I, th- that's true i think he he does hume does believe that all of those ideas even the 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 most basic ideas of mathematics wouldn't come to you if you were just a mind devoid of any sensory experience you had no other contact with any other consciousness and like it's 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 almost impossible to even imagine that state of existence you know like you yeah. pop into existence as a newborn baby you have zero sense organs that are working you're just a mind do you ever even come up with the concept of of one like you can probably make Descartes' statement of I think, therefore I am, like you have some understanding of your existence, but can you ever even come up with the concept of math or numbers in that state, right? But I do think there's an interesting uh, book that was written by um, uh, uh, Keith Devlin called uh, The Math Instinct, Why You're a Mathematical Genius. And he illustrates the fact that dogs, uh, your pet dog can actually do math to catch a frisbee that is uh, unatta- unattainable to someone unless they have uh, you know, a PhD level um, uh, training uh, to do the same uh, uh, equations to be able to catch the frisbee with their mouth, which I think is maybe pushing a point. But there has been a lot of uh, you know, discussion about whether there is a, a concept of an innate instinct in the same way there has been for like language. Yeah, well, that that guy should take a look at my GMAT scores and, and <laughs> tell me that there's like an innate instinct for math. You know, also, I think that, um, you know, I- instinct is an interesting kind of layer to add to this conversation. I also think that once you get into that level of trying to sort out where instinct falls in terms of rationalism or empiricism, you get into the mind-body conversation and at some point, you know, you can argue that all of those things that are happening in your mind are still in your brain, in your mind, which is your brain, are sense experiences. That dog could never catch that frisbee and quote unquote do all that complicated math in its head as a puppy. Um, and yeah. maybe some <laughs> maybe some of that's based on it's just pure gross motor skill development. You know, you I guess you could maybe argue that it has the 
the cognitive ability to do that. It doesn't have the gross motor capability to do that, but then also it can't develop the gross motor capability to do that without sampling the real world, without the proprioceptive input of standing up and air pressure and feeling the ground underneath it. Like it, it can't develop any of that without experience. Okay, guys, we got to vote. Okay. Okay. So here's what we have to vote on. We have to vote on whether or not we have any knowledge at all about the world independently of our sense experiences, which is essentially the rationalist claim. Well, I guess if that's the specific question we're voting on, I think I still say no. I I mean, I think I fall pretty heavily in the empiricist camp. Although the one thing I was going to say about Hume at the end there is that I think while he is a pretty hardcore empiricist in that he believes that even concepts like numbers are gained through the experience of the real world, most empiricists still believe that you need rational style thinking in order to take all of those concepts and build them into more complicated concepts Correct. to gain further yeah. understanding of the world. So it's I, I think sure. it's, it's not that the empiricists like completely reject that mode of thinking. It's just that they believe that all of the fundamental building blocks are based on experiencing the world. And, and, and your experience of the world may not actually be your experience of some deeper reality or some fundamental universe that exists. It's still your experience of that. And that is based on how our, our, our senses take in information from the quote unquote real world but that's what we can understand, and that's what we experience in our understanding of what it's possible to understand, which may be this right. layer of reality on top of the quote-unquote real universe. That's still the only thing that we can understand, and it's and, and it's all based on experience and and sense information. So that's that's I, I vote empiricist. So you vote empiricist, no a priori knowledge. Yeah, I think if you're a mind floating in space with no sense information and no contact with any other consciousness, which would require sense information, pretty hard to imagine that universe. And I think pretty hard to argue, even if it does exist, pretty hard to argue that a priori knowledge is real. Okay. Mark? A priori knowledge. Yeah, I think yes I'm gonna have no. to come come down on on the same case. You know, I I, I think the idea of, of a purely rationalist world is one of wishful thinking, and we do understand that there are fundamental truths that can be um, described with the language of mathematics and the kind of formal capacities of of logic. And it would be wonderful if everything could be reduced down to those levels. But I think one of the reasons why empiricism took off is because again, you know, the Baconian scientific method and the fact that we could actually you know, produce, you know, tangible uh, results, uh, which fueled, in, in effect, the, the Industrial Revolution and made a lot of people rich, that is partly why it became such the, the foundation of, of, you know, Western thinking. But overall, it is, um, the you know, a, a crucial part of the understanding of, of how we understand knowledge. When the empiricists um, would uh, criticize the rationalists, they uh, they they criticized them because they they assumed they had the knowledge and as everyone knows when you assume you make an ass out of you and me <laughs> yeah i'm pretty sure david hume said that right <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's my ass reference um, okay so here's my vote 
Well, before I vote, let me read you this quote from the 20th century philosopher A.J. Ayer, which I really like. And I think this kind of sums up my position. He says, There can be no a priori knowledge of reality. For the truths of pure reason, the propositions which we know to be valid independently of all experience, are so only in virtue of their lack of factual content. By contrast, empirical propositions are one and all hypotheses which may be confirmed or discredited in actual sense experience. So I think that like this is interesting because he's saying that there are truths uh, that can be discovered or uh, via pure reason, but that those are not facts about the world. They're true, but they don't provide us with any factual information about the world. And so I think that like that's an interesting sort of subtle and nuanced position, which we probably don't have time to fully explore right now but i but i i think there's some there's there's something interesting in there about the fact that two plus two equals four is true independently of any experience that we might have in the world like we're not going to have an experience um, that causes us to change our opinion about two plus two equals four but we might have an experience that causes us to change our opinion about the laws of physics for example and so I think he's drawing a nice distinction between a priori knowledge and a posteriori knowledge in the sense that it's almost kind of like the a priori knowledge, like those facts are kind of tautological, like they're just, they're true, but they don't really contain that much information about the world around us. So I guess that means that in the phrasing of the question as I posed it, do you even remember it anymore? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I think I said, do we have knowledge uh, about the world independently of our sense experience? Mm. And I guess I, I, I guess I'm going to say no. Uh, and so, like, sort of like put most of my weight into the empiricist camp because I think, do we have knowledge about the world independently of our sense experience? No. But are there things that are true regardless of what? Um, specific sense experiences we have, yes. All right, to the mid-show break. Hey, everyone. We want to take a few seconds here during the break and ask you for a favor or two. Don't worry, it's not about money. And really, you can just do one of these if you want. You don't have to do both. And you really only have to do one of them if you like the show. So, come on, this is sounding easier by the second. If you're enjoying the show... We'd love it if you took a second and hit the subscribe button in whatever podcast service you're using. iTunes, Apple's podcast app, Stitcher, Overcast, Castro, that's one I've heard the kids are using, Pocket Cast, Downcast, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, Dogcatcher, Podkicker. I'm pretty sure these all have subscription buttons, so take a second right now. You don't even have to pause the show. Just keep listening and find the subscribe button and hit it. It means you won't miss a show, and it keeps us visible to other handsome people like you who like shows like this but haven't found this particular one yet. The second thing, a little more effort, but not much. If you like the show, why not give us a rating or a review? You can do that in any podcast app or in iTunes. And even if you don't love the show and you just like it, leave us a review and let us know how we can improve it. We've already taken on some listener feedback that we've received, not just from emails and tweets, but also from reviews. And speaking of feedback, we've got some listener mail to get to. So back to the show. All right, so we do have some listener mail. Um, we've got one question that we'll tackle this week. 
Um, that comes to us from Daniel in Tampa, Florida, who says, I just started listening to your podcast. So far, I have listened to episode eight, Ship of Theseus, and episode 12, Personal Identity. And I have to ask, how in this day and age can someone bring up the subjects of Ship of Theseus and Personal Identity and not at least mention fax machines? I mean, the analogy between the fax machine and the defective teletransporter is so obvious to me that I can't imagine nobody else sees it. Uh, so my first question back to Daniel is, what day and age he's writing this email from in which... Well, he says this day and age, right. this day and age. Yeah, but... Well, I mean, he faxed it to us. Okay. I forgot we gave out our fax machine number. <laughs> um, so fax machines is one thing, um, and I think that certainly there is a parallel between fax machines and the topics we talked about in Ship of Theseus and Personal Identity, which really both of those have to do with how we maintain the idea of identity over time and as right. things change, whether it be the ship of Theseus, which is uh, a ship that you sit in port for a hundred years and every time a plank gets rotten, you rebuild it. And eventually after a hundred years, you've replaced every part of the ship. Is it still the same ship? We've got the same questions with personal identity. That's kind of an extension of the ship of Theseus idea. So, I mean, really what Daniel's asking is how do we, how do we tackle concepts like information, copying information, right? So a fax machine is a really rudimentary way to copy information and send it to another place and then have a copy, uh, a less than perfect copy of that information show up. You know, so he talks about that. We also had a conversation with him kind of back and forth with this email where he also brought up topics. Maybe this was in his original email. I don't remember. But topics like digital movies or digital pictures, right? So, right. Uh, Chad, you and I and and Mark, we all purchased a rental copy of Gremlins 2 this last week and watched it at our houses independently. Yeah. yeah. Did we yeah. actually watch the same movie or did we watch somehow separate versions of that movie, right? Like we now have copies, different copies of data of this same performance. Are they the same performance or not? Since the internet is essentially a copying machine, its foundation is it produces copies of itself. Yeah, I always like to say that the internet is a giant fax machine. I, I'm always amazed that um, in the US, at least, that a uh, signature in a fax is legally binding. <laughs> like that, that, yeah. that example of the uh, unassailable identity of an individual who is now contractually obliged to perform some service is a small, blurry copy of something that may right. or may not be a representation of an individual. So that's one of the things, actually, that I was thinking about um, when I read Daniel's question, is that it's sort of like... You know, th there's this notion, okay, like I, yeah, and I was thinking about that exact thing, Mark, where it's like, I enter into some like super important, extremely material, like life changing uh, arrangement, like I I'm going to buy a house. And the way that I buy that house is that I, uh, I print out a bunch of documents in my office and then I sign them, and then I spend two hours figuring out how to use the fax machine, and, and then I, I fax them to my bank, and then, like, what... The, so there's, like, the original document, I guess, which is the one that I print out and sign, but then I just throw that in the trash, and the one that really matters is, to your point, Mark, is, like, the one with, like, the, like, blurry, like, facsimile of my signature on it. And so in, on some level, like... 
you know, that's like the, the one that shows up on the other end of the fax machine is like sort of like the real document in a way, like it's the one that really counts or matters. Um, whereas the one, you know, that you, that I printed out, which you might think of as the original that I put into the fax machine on my end sort of like doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, that's like theoretically how you, a person buys a house, but how you actually bought your house was you went on vacation to a tropical island and made yeah. me go into the yeah. real estate office and spend yeah. an hour and a half signing my name onto paperwork yeah. where I had to sign my name, but then I also had to sign your name. And when I had to sign my name, I had to like write a line of copy that was about how I was signing for you. And that line of copy also right. had to be in cursive, which is like a form of writing that I haven't used for 30 years. So I had to relearn right. cursive. So like that's what one one way to do that is you go in and do it yourself. The other way to do it is you go on vacation and have your brother do it. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I don't know why I used that example because I should have known that you were going to come after me on it. I, I think then, you know, that may beg the question of, you know, which signature is the, is the real signature, my signature, or are you copying my signature? Well, I didn't copy your signature. I wrote your name in cursive and then wrote my signature. But the question you're asking is, is it is my signature that I wrote with a pen on a piece of paper in that office, the important one, or is it the one that the bank got that was faxed to them that is a copy yeah, of my Yeah, right, that's exactly right. Because you, you went in there and did all that work, and then you know what happened? Like, th those guys just, f like, faxed it all over the place to the bank and to the city and to the county and whoever God knows who. And, and then the one that you signed probably got thrown into the shredder are we answering daniel's question here or not no not at all daniel so my first piece of advice is if you have a sibling um and you buy a house don't make them go sign all your paperwork <laughs> that's the important yeah because you'll have learn. to hear about it forever do you own two houses now paco <laughs> uh i mean no i was gonna say unfortunately no but i think fortunately no <laughs> Maybe you actually own one, but one, the other one's just a duplicate of the one you already started with. And you can throw that house away. Well, I mean, <laughs> I have added some pieces to this house that I do actually own that have gotten old and worn out. So now I'm not sure that I actually own the same house I bought. It's the house of Theseus. It's the house of Theseus. Theseus Allen. <laughs> Um, so I guess, I don't know, I still kind of fall back onto my answer that I think I gave in the Ship of Theseus episode, which is the pragmatist answer, which is that, yes, Chad and Mark and I all watched the same movie, Gremlins 2. Yeah, I, I would actually go to go to the point of saying, from a linguistic point of view, um, we all watched the same movie. And using the analogy of, of, of the paperwork, we often have this, this terminology of a hard copy and a soft copy, that a hard copy being a you know, printed piece of paper and a soft copy being a digital copy. But I've always been um, of the opinion that we should at some point flip those two statements around, that the, um, the paper version is floppy, that's the soft copy, and the hard copy is on a hard drive and is digital and is immutable and can exist in multiple places and is more robust. And that's the real copy. That's the hard copy. Yeah, I mean, Interesting. ask Hillary Clinton if the, pa <laughs> the paper printout she had of her emails is more important than the digital copy that can never get erased from a thousand different hard drives. Absolutely. 
So I just like reading back through my um, copies of Daniel's email that I faxed to myself. And he said, uh, that's copyright uh, now, right? You faxed it to yourself. Yeah. What? No, that was like the old school way of copywriting and trademarking stuff is mailing it to yourself, but then, then faxing it to yourself. Really? I didn't know that. Uh, speaking of which, we should sing happy birthday at the end of this episode. <laughs> to? Because we can. To Dan- <laughs> to Daniel. But no, just because we can, because that song is no longer copyright protected. Okay. Um but I, I did want to, so I just like, uh, uh, I think it's important to note that um, I think Daniel more or less reaches the same conclusion as some of us might, which is that uh, pragmatism kind of wins out here because uh, despite the fact that we may have these sort of intellectual uh, discussions about whether or not the, you know, the gremlins movie that i watched is the same gremlins movie that you watched um at the end of the day we like find a way to like talk about these things and deal with them and like make things happen in the real world you know without getting bogged down in these debates we both watched the same platonic ideal of the movie i think that's what the um director's cut is officially called (laughs) gremlins to the platonic ideal yeah gremlins to the platonic ideal edition (laughs) Criterion Collection. <laughs> Blu-ray. Um, okay. Uh, I th- I mean, we didn't really answer Daniel's question. Or maybe we did. We I did. don't really know. Eventually. Um, yeah. Probably not sort to of. his satisfaction. No, I'm sure not to. Well, I, we'll probably get another email from him. You mean a fax? And we'll get another fax from him. Based on the, the, the listening to this in the final edit, we did one hell of a job. <laughs> Over to you, Paco. <laughs> Oh, crap. I'm editing this section. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it'll go straight from his question to one of us saying, pragmatism. Well, that's the end of the show. <laughs> okay, you ready to sing the happy birthday song? I mean, this yes. is the end of the show, right? Okay, ready? Yeah. Uh, suck it, Warner Chapel. One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Daniel from Tampa, Florida. Happy birthday to you. (laughs) What were you trying to do there, Mark? (laughs) What? That's how that's how the song goes in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) It's upside down. All right. <laughs> All right. I was trying to harmonize. I was harmonizing. Oh. Now we're really done. I'm out of here. Yep. See you guys. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and give us a rating in iTunes. As always, you can find us online at you've got it all wrong.net, where you can find show notes for today's episode and links to other episodes. We'd love to hear your philosophical questions. So send us your paradoxes, conundrums, and burning questions about the mysteries of the universe to questions at you've got it all wrong.net and you can follow us on twitter the show's at all wrong podcast i'm at paco allen i'm at chad allen and i'm at m sanders
you know, I'm not very good with faces, but I do think that Leibniz looks a little bit like Kevin Spacey. He died. Leibniz mm. was the one oh, I struggled yeah. with the most. Like, if you ignore the nose, he's got. He definitely has kind of a Kevin Spacey thing going on. He's got Kevin Spacey eyes. <laughs> <laughs> That's how that song goes, right? Uh, yeah, you should definitely put that in the Sizzlers. <laughs> in the Sizzlers. What? We going out to eat? No, that's what it's called. The things at the at the end of the show. Those are not called Sizzlers. No. What are they called? Obbies. They're called the Obbies. They are. They are not. They're called like post credit Easter eggs.